Welcome to 52 Weeks of Hope. This is where you get to hear how to feel happy, balanced, and worthwhile. How to make that lonely ache vanish and feel empowered, confident, and secure. I'm Lauren Abrams, and today we're talking to the one and only producer, author, dad, and for these purposes, coach, Steve Morris. Founder of Coast Camp for Kids, the funnest place for kids to be happy over the summer. Coach Steve's overcome screaming sideline parents for over a decade and a lot more. As a coach and a parent in the dizzying world of youth sports, raising his three kids with his wife and finding that the world of backyard and pickup ball with your friends changed drastically. Steve authored a tell-all and funny warning to future parents reminding of what we all want, joy in the process. Steve's funny never holds back what he's thinking and always makes you feel good about yourself. Welcome to 52 Weeks of Hope, Coach Steve. Wow, Laura, I don't even know who that guy is. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. <laughs> yeah. And I, I said, oh, wait, I have to go grab the book. Here's his book. <laughs> yep, what size it. balls do I need? Which is a fabulous title. Come on. Who, who came up with the title for your book? A wonderful mom named Abby Adams. It was in the early days of doing Coach Steve little kid soccer classes. So this is now almost 20 years ago. And just watching the kids bounce off each other because they were all four and five years old and coordination had not kicked in yet. And the kids were the parents were laughing almost as hard as the kids. Abby said, you know, you should write a book. And here's the title. You know, uh, what size balls do I need? And I just I started laughing. I thought that is a title. That is that is Um, a fabulous title for the book. Yeah, I had no aspirations of writing the book, but I knew that if I ever wrote the book, that was going to be the title. Yeah. And, you know, 17 years later, after my kids graduated and then sort of aged out of sports and I was sort of, you know, left alone walking the dogs um, and planning for the next summer camp, I said, you know, maybe I should write the book. And I had a wealth of material, years and years of notes and emails saved and just anecdotes. Then it took the next year and a half, two years to kind of fashion it into a narrative. And then, you know, rewrite it a million times because writing is rewriting. And um, then it was done. And it really didn't sort of come together for me. It didn't really hit me until I saw the cover that uh, a good friend of mine, a graphic artist, put together. And once I saw the cover, I said, all right, it's real. Yeah, it's and it's fabulous. I don't I don't know who actually watches podcasts, but if you're on YouTube or something, or I'm, and I'll put links to everything so you can see the cover of the book. So, but I'll back up a little bit. You I, went to Yale, you moved out here, you're a producer, you're doing commercials. It's, what, it's or, a yeah. completely circuitous story. Yeah. How did you end up coaching kids and starting your camp? Because my kids, just as a disclaimer, Coach Steve, my kids went to the greatest, funnest summer camp, Coach Steve's camp. Coast sports and they still they talk about it. My son would not go away to camp. He went once and he still like gives me a hard time about you went away. You sent me away and you went to Tahiti or wherever I went that one the one summer I've been allowed to go away. I have full custody of both kids and I've never been allowed to go away. (laughs) Well, you know, your kids were, you know, built for camp. Yes. And it was, you know, it, it was a very unusual camp. But I guess the story really starts with my going to camp. I was a product of summer camp a couple of years, grew up on Long Island. So there were a couple of years at day camp and then went away for 10 years in the Adirondacks to a fabulous camp called Camp Baco. All the Native American names were taken. And this was just sort of uh, the Balfour Amster Camping Organization. Awful. The acronym, though, Baco. And, you know, there were so many kids from Long Island going to camp that 
it wrote Long Island rose a few inches above sea level every summer because all the kids were just shipped out. The parents just sent them away. So we I went to camp. I mean, I that my greatest memories of childhood are my three weeks, not the whole summer, three weeks at camp. Yeah. I love camp on the Chesapeake Bay. Yeah. I mean, it, it's the greatest. I, I, Everything I learned, pretty much I learned at camp, you know, lessons of cooperation and teamwork and loyalty, the power of community, um, all the fundamental experiences I had and uh, were from camp. And my best friends today were my friends from, you know, 50 years ago, 55 years ago. You know, they're all still around. And my 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 campers who I had when I was a counselor were all still best friends. But, you know, you you finish your time at camp. For me, it was when I was 20 and you move on into life. And I had always wanted to get into movies. It was kind of where I communicated best with my father. He loved movies. And, you know, throughout the years of adolescence, when you're fighting with your parents, you know, we could still talk on, oh, Adventures of Robin Hood is on. Let's go watch. And we'd sit there and we'd talk character actors like Alan Hale and, you know, Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland, all these. But we could communicate that way. So camp is, is finished and I move on. And at Yale, I uh, ran the Film Society. So I was very intimidated at Yale. I came from a public school in Long Island. Everybody there seemed to be from Andover and Exeter. And when I was a freshman, they all seemed to have this a sophomore experience. So I was, you know, I didn't know what to do with myself. So I retreated to the dark. I found the film society and worked my way through the film society, taking tickets until after a couple of years, I was choosing the films and they were 16 millimeter prints and I would get them and schedule them. And I'd watch them on my living room wall and then show them to the school. And it was the greatest. So I thought, oh, great. I'm going to go out to Hollywood and, you know, uh, be a film writer, be a film director. But then, you know, my own personal reality of fear and anxiety kicked in. And I couldn't quite make the leap to going to Los Angeles. So I moved to New York and worked in television commercials for a bunch of years. But still, the camp spirit was still within me. And when I was in the film society, we kind of ran it like camp. And when I was working the commercials and traveling around the country to different places, shooting, bringing the, the same group of people with me, you know, all the time, it was like camp. And then moved out to Los Angeles and wanted to be a writer and had modest success in in screenwriting you know enough success to keep going but not really enough to eat but you know just to keep going was what my first wife beth helped me get out here and then my second wife marcy was with whom i had my three children and the eldest when he was four said dad i, I want to go play soccer and i said great let's go outside and he said no not with you I want real soccer. <laughs> I want soccer with a coach. So four years we, old, yeah. Four years old. So we, we found a class and went to this class. And the coach's methodology was kind of different from mine. There was a bit of screaming at the kids and intimidating the parents. And it was just like, whoa, well, you know, maybe I can do this based on my limited high school experience a million years ago. where I, was I didn't grow up with soccer. I it didn't know soccer just, until my older daughter, my oldest, my daughter started playing. I was like, OK, it seems like everything's offsides. I had to learn soccer. There you go. <laughs> but so it was kind of coming into its own on Long Island. It was on Long Island. It was kind of the game of the immigrants. I mean, you know, there were Polish and Italian and Puerto Rican pickup games on the weekends. But it really was just starting to get into the high schools. And the coolest part about soccer were the shin guards. 
when I was in eighth grade, the best part, they had just sort of invented Velcro and just put it on these little, you know, foam rubber pads. And you just sat there the whole time going, shh, 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 shh. and that was soccer. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, flash forward 30 something years, my kid said he says he wants to play. We're in a class that I'm horrified by. And I said, well, maybe I can take these kids out and do my own little class. And so Evan and a, a dozen of his preschool friends came out to Barrington Park. And uh, I had these PVC goals that I set up and a bag of balls and a whistle. And uh, I, you know, bought a bunch of books. I figured let's stay five minutes ahead of the kids. That ought to be good enough. And we just ran around the, uh, and had a good time at Barrington. And then they all started next fall was when they got to sign up for AYSO. So I signed up to coach AYSO, the American Youth Soccer Organization, and had a great time with my, my U6 team, which was co-ed at the time. And those kids wanted to be in a class after, after uh, the season ended. So I had the kids from before AYSO. I had these kids. Now I had two classes I was doing. I had been trying to write screenplays. And after a while, the balance of working with the kids to going home, sitting home and writing just you know flipped on its head. And I was just doing classes. And then an ex-partner of mine suggested, well, why don't we do camp? And having gone to camp and known you know, how difficult it really is to pull off a camp, I said, no, oh, no, these classes are fine. He said, come on, let's do it. And so we put together a camp and I had it all figured out. We would have, you know, the five-year-olds would do soccer this time and the eight-year-olds would play basketball this time. And, you know, we move around in the group. The first day there were 17 kids of all different ages. So how are you going to do a five-year-old group and an eight-year-old group and a 10-year-old? So everybody just got mushed together. And you know what? Go where you want. You want a place we put out the activities and the kids could go where they want. So we had soccer, we'd have basketball, we'd have arts and crafts, we'd add other things. And it can't be evolved um, so that it, it just became this empowering uh, episode in the kids' lives where, you know, they weren't being told what to do. You know, they could go where they want as long as they weren't bullying and they were being nice and respectful. They pretty much had the run of the place. And, you know, there was a structure that was more invisible that they didn't, they, you know, they had a lot of room, but, you know, we had control. Didn't seem like it, but we actually had control. And it kind of just evolved. And so the camp thing came back. So I loved camp as a kid, but, you know, you outgrow camp, supposedly. And then I came back to it 30 years later, and that then became my life, camp and coaching kids. So I never really outgrew it. The theme of my life was baked in early and I tried resisting it for the, you know, the next few eras. Yeah. I guess what, what's meant for you is going to, is meant for you. <laughs> That's yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. And it'll find you. So you are meant to be coach Steve. You know, it's, it's been a major blessing. Yeah. Interacting with all these kids and families over the years. I mean, when I see, kids now that I've had in camp since they were little, I see them at their various ages simultaneously. So uh, I'm talking to a 20 year old, but I see a, uh, an eight year old and a 12 year old and a 16 year old, you know, they're, they're standing right in front of me at different heights while we're having the conversation. It's really yeah. kind of fun. Yeah. My son's known you since uh, probably yeah. since he's two three. and he's yeah. telling me, yeah, yeah three, yeah. whatever it is. And he's telling me, oh yeah. I was texting Coach Steve to tell him where, where he's going to college and this, that, and you're, you're give, telling him where to go eat and who he can know. And I well, mean, that's just. I that's, mean, I have this enduring image of Breddy because he was little. 
yeah. but he was unstoppable and he'd be on the basketball court throwing oh, yes. up, throwing up, you know, 30 foot shots, but heaving it off his shoulder. He had that shot. And, you know, the other kids were all kind of doing the same. And I kept saying, you know, Brett, someday you're going to actually, you know, shoot for real. And he said, yeah. oh, I'm always going to have this shot because he was deadly. He could make that shot. Yeah. But, you know, you have these experiences that are so profound with these kids at their different ages. And it's been one of the, you know, just the greatest joys of my life. And for me, it, as a single mom with all those Brentwood moms, sorry, but it, it was, I mean, you, I never felt uncomfortable coming in there. And I can't say that everywhere I went, but never you'd be, Lore! <laughs> when I came in, it wasn't just a kid you made feel comfortable. I always felt comfortable. And that's huge for me at that time when my kids were that little, there weren't a lot of single moms as far as I knew. There may have been, but as far as I knew from preschool and elementary school and stuff, I didn't know them. And I never felt uncomfortable. Well, you and were part of the family. Yeah. You, and, you know, uh, the parents yeah. were part of the so, family. The yeah, grandparents absolutely. were part of the family. Yep. Yeah. And so it was, you know, that that's huge, too. Now, your book is not about this camp, though. It was about coaching the AYSO and everything yes. else and these parents. And really, you're surviving coaching in that kind of a world and what you witnessed. And I, I, I would imagine there's some PTSD because now you're having to relive it and talk about it since your book came out in writing about it. And I, I know you write with humor, but there's the serious undertones also. Well, it's not even undertones. You're you're right. You know, I think I was lucky because I have a non-threatening personality. And so that if there was an aggressive parent, his, you know, sort of energy would dissipate before it hit me. And I think I also parents gave me a lot of latitude because they saw their kids were having a great time. So I think that's the key. If the parents see that their kids are learning, they're developing, they're getting along with others, they're laughing, then, you know, it's kind of disarming. It's hard to come at somebody when, you know, it's ostensibly it's for their kids, but their kids are having a great time. So as far as PTSD, I think, I mean, I was so lucky. I got to be a participant in a lot of horror shows and there were a few, you know, really difficult moments. I think my most difficult moments had to do with telling kids or parents that they couldn't be on certain teams at different times. That was probably the, the toughest, you know, chore I had to do. Cause at that point I was the regional coach administrator, the head coach of the, the Palisades, Brentwood, Topanga region. And so there was a lot of administrative stuff. So I was, you know, emails would be flying across, uh, you know, my desk all day and night, I'd be writing emails two in the morning, but it always, even at the worst times, I always was able to kind of look at it with a, a bit of remove and see that this is kids sports. There's got to be fun here. If it's not fun, why are we doing it? They've got so many years to be adults. All right. Why are we imposing that on them now? And, you know, I ran my teams that way of, you know, let's all do this together. It, it, total inclusivity, parents, you know, it was family. I, in my, with all three of my kids, I acquired three sets of new best friends. You know, because they just really, these are the people you live with while you're doing it. So it, it really came down to, from my point of view, providing an experience and then interacting with everybody on as honest a level as possible and doing it with humor, keeping it light, because that's what it was. It wasn't brain surgery. It was, it was youth sports. And so 
in writing the book, the book was kind of told in the the format of a memoir because it, it totally exploits all three of my kids and everything they went through. So there are a lot of, you know, anecdotes. It's a roadmap for young parents getting into the game who, you know, really, oh, you know, you, you get in, you don't know, you just figure I, you're, I, I'm signing have, up my I kid. Have a friend. I have a friend. I'm absolutely sending this to because you don't thinks, know. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. And it's not just that. I mean, our kids young and, Oh, he's going to be a professional. This, that, and other. I'm, okay. Yeah. And uh, well, I kept saying, right yeah, it's come on. just And they'll learn. They'll either learn, you know, sooner or later, but they'll learn. And then the last part was it's a rant against those crazy parents, because as you know, I've gotten older in the program and the parents have gotten younger. It seems that everything has gone really haywire. I mean, it's just changed. You know, there's recreational soccer and recreational sports, and then there are club or travel sports. And when my kids were little, you didn't really make the leap from one to the other until about the age of 12. You know, there were a couple of outliers that that would go at nine or 10, but you know, pretty much 12 was a line of demarcation. If you wanted more competition, you could sort of move on. Now club and travel programs are taking six-year-olds. What? Six-year-olds with, you know, three practices, sometimes four practices a week with the same promises that are, we're, we're a pathway to get your kids college, college scholarships. And it's just, it's disheartening watching it. And it's in our, it's ongoing right now. There are a couple of, you know. With COVID? Well, COVID. Okay. So let's talk COVID. So there was an enforced hiatus last March. Everybody just stopped. Now the, the AYSO just stopped. It went away, but the clubs who have to pay their coaches and have to pay field permits, they needed cash flow. So they started doing zoom, zoom, you know, zoom basketball, zoom soccer, zoom, whatever the sport was. And it worked for a while, but the kids would start getting bored and the coaches were getting tired of it. And then around midsummer, when the regulations relaxed a little bit, they went right back onto the field, most masked, some not most socially distant, some not. And they would, you know, keep the kids in the program and the, the money flowing that way. And then in the fall, they started a lot of the, uh, Utah opened up, Arizona opened up, Arizona, San, Diego, yeah. San Diego County opened up. And so parents were traveling everywhere outside of Los Angeles to go to get their kids in weekly tournaments, baseball tournaments, uh, basketball tournaments, soccer tournaments, whatever there was. People were just flying, flying into hot zones, flying into COVID hot zones. But throughout this, you know, it was a slightly more relaxed where there were family dinners and there was more bonding. And the hope, the great hope or my great hope was when we came back that, you know, parents would take a deep breath and go, wow, what a year that's been. I'm so happy that we're back. Let's take this a little slower. You know, let's pause, maybe not go back to the same program, maybe try a different sport. I really like those family dinners. And what the reality has been over the past month, as all these sports come roaring back, as it's been kind of a tsunami where they've come back crazier than ever. Really? More practices a week, I know, more tournaments. I know this is in your book, your your hope and what was happening. And my fear so. has been realized. Oh, no. Okay. So, I mean, you know, back to a million practices a week. In high school, usually the, cl the, the club season pauses for the high school season. Well, now they're both doing it together. So you've got kids playing club and high school sports at the same time. 
And with not all that much of a, a spring training, as it were, so kids are getting injured. It's just the, the craziness has been amped up and, you know, it's going to move on right through the summer. Yes. And are, you're, but you're not coaching that anymore. You're, you're doing your camp, right? Yes. If, with uh, LAUSD willing, I'll be doing camp. Yeah. yeah still <laughs> waiting on the school district to let me know if they'll open the campus. So when somebody asks you now what you do, what do you say? I run a camp. I'm a coach or I'm both. What, how do you what do you say? I'm an author. <laughs> you know, I'm not really sure what I have been doing. What I've actively been doing for the past eight or nine months is making videos. I've kind of kind of gotten back to you're making reels and Insta. You're on TikTok now. Or well, wait, TikTok wait, is coming. But I, I was kidding. Insta but <laughs> No, no, no. The, so here's what it, it did. So I wrote the book. We published the book in August. And in September, I started making little one minute promotional Instagram videos. And I did 10 of them as Coach Steve's Commandments. And I would film them, write them, edit them, score them and do them on iMovie on my phone and put them on Instagram. You know, they were a ton of fun. I do one a week. Okay. And I finished the Ten Commandments, and then it was sort of Christmas season, and I put the Santa suit on, and I did a bunch of, uh, you know, Santa sports themed ones. And then come January, I was sent a video by a local soccer club. It was about an eleven-year-old girl who they were extolling as the next um, professional superstar. And there were coach interviews, and there were professional interviews, and you saw her running, and she was with her teammates. And it evoked a feeling of me of just this revulsion that how dare they impose this on this poor little girl who was too young to know better. And yeah, oh, I want to be a professional soccer player. Dude, you haven't hit puberty. You got obstacles aplenty ahead of you. But everybody was just pounding all this praise on her. And I thought, you know what? I want to do a, a rebuttal video. and. I came up with this character who is the most toxic coach alive. And his name uh, is Dick Punch. It was the name of a friend of mine from New York from a million years ago. And Dick Punch has a voice like this, and he's got an eye patch, and he's the, got the worst advice ever. He's telling people, I mean, he's promising that he'll get little four-year-olds into college and they'll become pros. And he's saying, you know, if you're, you know, if you're not kicking kids, other kids in the teeth and you're not playing, he's the total anti-coach Steve. So I've made a bunch over the past couple of months of Dick Punch videos that are now also on Instagram and YouTube with the coach Steve. And now I've married the two. I've got the rivalry between coach Steve and Dick Punch going. So this is all actually leading towards my next book, which will be about Dick Punch. So it's the trial of Dick Punch, and it's going to talk about, you know, how he got to where he, he was and what the, uh, the grand reveal that I probably shouldn't, you know, but it's all leading to this big sort of, I don't know, cultural epiphany. So this one will be fiction. The other one was nonfiction, but it's all pretty much about the same themes of, you know, parents. Come on. Let's have some perspective. Let's have some balance. Let's have some lighten you know, up, lighten up, <laughs> lighten take up. a breath. Yeah. <laughs> take a breath. Yeah, we need. Some so that's what I've been doing. I don't know what I am, but that's yeah. what I've been doing. Waiting okay. to hear about becoming a camp director again. Yes. When in life have you felt the most alone? When in life have I felt the most alone? I like being alone. 
that's not how I meant. Lonely, that's, that's not you know? how I meant the question. I do too. <laughs> that's not at all how I meant it. Yes. Or what do you, let me put it this way. When you feel lonely, what do you do? Or do you, I mean, you're married, so. I'm married. I spend time with my, my animals, my dogs. I'll watch movies and TV with my wife and hang out with them and spend way too much time reading about politics online and getting de- further depressed about that. I don't know. I have a very high threshold for loneliness and boredom. I, I think maybe it has to do with just an innate optimism that, you know, even in the worst times, it just kind of just buoys me that I don't really feel, I, I kind of crave that. I mean, people think I'm this grand extrovert. I'm a total introvert. I mean, I was the best quarantine guy going because my life was pretty much quarantine. You know, I, I lived my life in three parts. There was summer camp, there was recovering from camp, and there was dreading camp. And then there was camp again. So when there wasn't camp and I had, you know, wasn't coaching, I graduated from that, I pretty much was by myself. And I'm very content in that, in that milieu. And maybe that's because I, I have succumbed through my life to anxiety and, you know, paralyzing, if not crippling fear at times. And so it's a rationalization that I'm doing well while I might not be. <laughs> but, you know, I, I take a lot of comfort in my, my friends, my family, my aging dogs. And so, you know, I know you're going to ask about my greatest challenge. If you had a dark period in your life, how you ever overcame it? I think my dark, darkest period was probably my early 20s when I fell in love with various substances. You know, I had started late. All my friends were smoking pot in high school. I didn't pretty much start till the end of high school or college. So I had to make up for lost time. And, uh, you know, after college, working in production and working in, you know, New York's version of, of Hollywood, you know, there was a lot of substances around and, you know, I partook. And so maybe my darkest or loneliest days were getting so deeply into it in my mid late twenties that there were times that I, you know, would pray in the middle of the night, please let me wake up and I'll stop doing this. Um, I was actually one of the lucky ones because I guess I got so scared I was able to just stop. You know, I, I know a lot of people that weren't and, you know, some aren't here right now. Yes. So I think my darkest days were kind of my early mid-20s when I wanted to be a writer. I was working in production and I just was doing drugs because it was easy. It was fun. It was available and everybody else was doing them too. Yeah. So and you just stopped. I mean, it is amazing to me. I have so many friends that were like you that it was a phase and they just stopped. They got married. They got careers. They had kids. They went on with their lives. Well, the harder stuff I stopped, I, you know, continued dabbling in the softer areas, you know, you know, for a while. But yeah, I guess I, I got so scared. I mean, physically scared that, you know, when you're when you're staying up for 40 or 50 hours and you're going downstairs to ask the doorman for matches at 3.30 in the morning. You know, it's like, there's something wrong here. And you try to finally go to sleep, but your heart is pounding. It's jumping out of your chest. You get, you, you get religious. And even though the, the religious impulse passed when I woke up, it just, the, the thrill was gone because, you know, I think the thing about substances and even a lot of life is the anticipation is the best part. You know, once you do it, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, 
but you know the procurement and the the preparation and that's you know that's where the excitement builds and that's kind of oh yeah i've been here before so you know maybe i was able to turn that around and you know in my mind say you know, just stop yeah i think ordering cakes from the east coast is kind of like that now you're the one that actually introduced me to those cookies i now remember Uh-oh. that those black big black and white cookies. oh yeah you're like Romans. you have to i ran into you when i was getting super i remember you and you said you have to get these cookies they're amazing and i obsessed on these cookies i would go and run out in the middle of, like i would just and then i was like they're probably better from new york so i would order them from new york. i <laughs> Look, look, a good so black and white cookie. Same. Come on. Yeah, yeah I know. Best. And so I've got anyway. Well, now I know what I can get you. <laughs> but it's, if that's the worst thing I do, which is the worst thing I do, to tell you the truth, yeah. I mean, Dude. so be it. It's it's OK. I work hard for that. That's totally fine. So when you talk to people <laughs> that say, don't be Pollyanna, parents are always going to be like this. They're always going to be yelling at their kids. There's always dads like that. You got to keep fighting the fight. And it's, huh? Um, keep fighting the fight. What do you what do you say? Do you just like say, oh, OK, or do you fight them and say, no, I believe in it? Or what do you do with naysayers? Well, look, there's always going to be a, a subset of parents that you cannot reach. And, you know, I've gotten good over the years to realize who they are. And I just back off. But I mean, there, there's there have only been a, a handful of times where people have been so incorrigible, you know, just I couldn't deal with them. Most people kind of understand. I had one great experience or. Well, it was, you know, over a bunch of years. So I had one parent that was such a gamer for his kid. He only cared about his kid and just would always be screaming for his kid and cheering for his kid and lobbying for his kid. And his, you know, his kid was the best thing on the team. And, you know, uh, we had to create positions for this kid. And he would try and leverage his kid, whether he was going to even come back and play the next year. Because, well, what position is he going to play? And how much playing time is he going to get? And it was just so sickening. But in the spirit of community, we kept it together. And then the kid just stopped showing up. One year, he just stopped showing up. He had had, he had enough soccer on his resume that, you know, uh, it would be good to, you know, get him into college. I mean, he didn't have to come anymore. And I saw the dad in Brent Air Pharmacy probably four or five years after that. And we hadn't spoken since, you know, the disappearance, since the evaporation of him. And the dad came up to me and he gave me this hug and he said, Coach Steve, I totally apologize. I am so sorry. I was such an asshole. And I see it now. And what was it all for? What was I pushing so hard for? You know, it was it was an it was an evanescent experience. It was here. It was gone. I needed to appreciate it more in the moment. You kept telling us just enjoy it now. It's not going to last forever. These are the golden days. And I couldn't hear that then. And I almost started crying. He was crying. I'm almost standing crying. You have the person at the counter going, ah, your prescription is here. And the two of us are like weeping in the pharmacy. And it was moving for me. It was obviously, you know, uh, something he had thought about for a long time. So I try to counsel parents, have some perspective. You know what? Yeah, today's problem. Yeah, they're, they're not playing forward today. All right. Or they only got one period playing forward and they had to play more defense. Wait till next week. Wait till next month. Just it's a long, you know, there are 10 years actually, at the best. We get 10 years. Read, read uh, Steve's book. It's it, it actually <laughs> says it so well and succinctly. And it's yeah, funny. Yeah, I, I mean, 
really it's you, your book is great thank you it is it's if, if you have kids that are in that world it's it's a good warning and it it's it gives good solution and it's good reminders well, we try to I keep it you, light too. yes it you is it's it funny light. it's very funny i mean because it's you it, it is funny so it's well done and i was just doing a whole copywriting course online and and i was like oh you did all of this there's no extraneous words here <laughs> I was like, oh, that was good. Yeah, um, through it many times. I, I wanted to learn how to like do headings on emails correctly and do learn different things. So I was like, I don't really have time for any of this, but I signed up for it. So I was like, oh, okay. let me learn it really quick. Yeah. The gym quick, you know, kind of. Well, but emails is a great training ground. I mean, before I had any aspirations for writing this, I excelled at emails. That was kind of, you know. You did. I, you absolutely. I made sure. You, you, your emails were very good, but I, I know how to send legal. So I. Oh, a little thought, different. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> totally different. So. Yeah. But um, emails, you know, emails were. I've actually thought for a while that my, I don't know, that emails was going to be the epitome of what I did. Yeah. And I was, I was fine with that. And then figured, the all right, emails at two book. in the morning. I'm like, why are you up so late? But before I get to asking you what your message of hope is, before we started recording, you had you listened to Sean's episode. You had a really good quote from there that hit you. His quote that, you know, it was Sean Bradley. Hit me like hit me like a, a gong was if you're not living a life of design, you're living a life of default. And that hit me because yeah, I've been living a life of default because I'd never had any grand master plans. I had the vague plan of, I want to, you know, do something in Hollywood. I want to make my mark in Hollywood. And, you know, so I bounced into production and then I bounced into trying to write screenplays and I bounced into running a summer camp. Attendant to that is the notion of irony. So you know, irony is expecting something and getting something different that actually informs the first thing you were intending to do. You know, the big example is O. Henry's Gift to the Magi. You've got the, the woman has this fabulous hair and the husband has got a great watch. They've got no money, but they want to get each other presents. So she cuts off her hair and gets him a watch chain. He sells the watch and gets her brushes. And they're both, so she's bald. He's got a, you know, he's got a watch chain, but they're very happy. So, you know, that's kind of irony. Well, the irony is that I, you know, when I was uh, Steve Morris screenwriter, I could never get any Hollywood powers that be to, you know, really answer the phone. I know where you're going with this. So, yeah, but when I became coach does. Steve, yeah. when I became coach Steve, all of a sudden there were people throwing guys out of the office if coach Steve was calling to talk about their kids. Yes, I had that, one that, studio. That, I had one. Yeah, I had the, one the studio. The famous head. people at this camp is like off the charts. It, it, like I'd go drop off, I, and it didn't matter who you were, though. No. I mean, I was. I'd walk in. It was Lar. Yeah. It wasn't Coach Steve running to pedal to the famous no. people. It was everybody's equal. I love that. But go ahead, go with your. I, I, pre I preferred Lore actually than to. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I had the, a studio head once came to me and said, you know, I've got people coming in to pitch Coach Steve stories to me all the time. <laughs> and he, he said to me and I told him, no, you don't know Coach Steve. And it, so the irony of here I come out to, you know, sort of conquer Hollywood. And, you know, it kind of happened a completely different way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, unintended consequences. I, I, lo I love that. So do you have a message of hope? I have a couple of them, if that's OK. It absolutely is. Okay. Uh, the first one is uh, dial down the pressure. Dial it down on yourself. Dial it down on your kids. 
what seems unbelievably important and critical today. Take a deep breath and tomorrow or next week or next year is going to seem insignificant. And while you're going through this, if you're really, if, so, if you're going through hard times, try and keep a sense of humor, a sense of perspective and embrace the hard time because guess what? The hard time now is going to be your legend. It's going to be your funny stories later. So, you know, the misery that you're trying to get through now and you tell that story in 10 years, there's going to be everybody you're telling it to is going to be doubled over laughing, as will you. So it seems like the worst that you're going through now. And there's some bad stuff. I don't want to minimize it. But if you try and take a deep breath and know that, okay, we'll get through this. And then down the road, this is going to, you know, this is going to be who I am and my, the building block of me. And it'll be, it, it won't make it any easier going through what you're going through, but, you know, you'd make it a slight bit easier that, you know, you'll get to the next day. Another message is just because, and this is maybe for parents of younger kids or parents of kids that are getting into college or getting out of college, just because someone may not have their mission or their passion or their life plan settled right away, doesn't mean they're not going to find it later. I think I'm the, a, a, an exemplar of coming to it, backing into it, zipping around it. Yeah, you too. Coming to it late, but then getting there and realizing it and being able to fully embrace it because of all the dreck you've gone through earlier, you know, building up your, your strength, bolstering, uh, you know, your resources. So just because you don't know right away, take a deep breath. Don't, don't, you know, beat yourself up. Just keep moving forward. And, you know, at some point you will get to that. And I think the last thing is you'll never go wrong doing things or caring about other people. You will never go wrong. But one, you know, and I'm just a, a selfish thing, it'll take you out of yourself. You know, you'll get out of your own head, your own self-importance, your own obsession of self, doing or thinking or caring about other people. And then what'll come back to you, you know, you don't know it, you can't expect it, you don't even want it. But just the, the, the gratitude, the love, the who knows what that comes back to you in helping others, and just the sheer beauty of doing it, you'll never go wrong. So that's kind well, of a, those are amazing messages of hope. Where did you learn about doing for others and how good it makes you feel and all of that? Because I didn't grow up knowing that. That is something I've learned only in the last couple of decades. And, and it's what I do. But I didn't like I'm always amazed. I, I interviewed Rabbi Jill Zimmerman and her mom taught her that. And I was like, wow, you grew up knowing that? Like, I don't I, I don't well, know. My, my father maybe, always. My I don't know. Maybe, maybe like they taught it and it was like, I just didn't hear it because I don't well, know. I'm not necessarily speaking of community service or soup kitchen stuff. I, I, no, I, mean, I know that. I understand. My father always said, be nice to other people. It doesn't matter who they are. Just be nice. And you know, I've always been that way. I mean, some of my best friends are the mailmen and the, you know, the valet car parkers and the guy that the guys that deliver this and that or, or do your cars or mow your lawns. I just, you know, uh, the custodians at camp are my best friends. Yeah. I have the greatest relationship, but also I can get whatever I want because you go through them. But through the years, you know, those are the people that I've also gravitated to. So I think once I started working with kids, it really came about, you know, being able to, to work with them and help them and teach them. I got a huge amount of, of satisfaction from it. 
and just, you know, the, the knowledge that I'm, I'm helping other people. So I don't know that it was so much, you know, it, it definitely started with, you know, my father saying, you know, it doesn't matter who somebody is, just be nice to them, be respectful. And, no, that's, that's great. I was just curious. I just, yeah. I'm always wondering, like, where'd you learn that? I know where I learned it and I didn't learn it until really, like I said, a few decades ago. So, so. Well, it's also, it comes from a neurotic place too. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> because uh, and, um, it's a lot easier for me to give than take. Yes. I think it is for a lot of people. And I had, when Stacy Gorin was on and she talked about, she had to ask for what she needed when her husband got sick. And, and that was actually a big thing for her. So it was, yeah, yeah, you know, right. yeah, but I loved every message of hope that you gave. And uh, I'm so appreciative of you being here today this was on 52 law. weeks of hope. Yeah, it really. It's so good to see you even virtually. And one day soon we will all get to hug because we're vaccinated. Yay. <laughs> Pfizer, Pfizer, yeah. Pfizer, yeah, Pfizer. Totally. I know. So we will put links to your book, eventually your second book. We'll stick that one up there too, to your little one minute clips uh, and so on. It for anybody that wants to reach Coach Steve. Thanks for being a guest today on 52 Weeks of Hope. Thanks, Laura. This was awesome. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and take with you Coach Steve's messages of lightening up joy and savoring each moment. Maybe even take a breath and wait for the right answers to come for ourselves and others along the way. Be sure to tune in next week for writer, producer, and funny man himself, Jack Hergooth. Jack talks about overcoming cancer twice, thinking his career was over, catastrophic thinking, and how to overcome it. And his new work, Never Surrender, about people in the entertainment industry who think the rug's been pulled out from under them and think everything's over when really everything in the end works out just fine. It's a great episode from an industry insider. And uh, he talks about his new work, Never Surrender. So it, anyway, it's just so good. You don't want to miss that. If you're on Clubhouse, which did just open up for Android users, you don't have to have an iPhone anymore. Just go ahead and message me at 52weeksofhope.com and I'll send you a link to get in and invite. I've got rooms there on Tuesdays at five o'clock, on Thursdays and on Saturdays at different various times. Just go ahead and message me at 52weeksofhope.com and I will send you a link. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, share the love, tell two of your friends and please follow the podcast as well as leave us a positive review. I'm Lauren Abrams. Thanks for listening.